Welcome to Stay Engaged 2021. Everything you know and love about IAB Engage, but brought to you day by day. It's Engage, but offstage. Stay Engaged is hosted in partnership with Quantcast, creators of a new and innovative intelligent audience platform. Today's offstage audio session is from Quantcast's Vice President of Product Management, Summer Simpson, addressing the news eco chamber we have created and the path to journalistic integrity. Drawing on her background in journalism and digital media, Summer speaks about the tools marketers and publishers can leverage to drive brand integrity and accountability in a free and open internet. Looking at the past, present and future, over to Summer. Hi there, thanks for the intro. I am in fact Summer Simpson. I am VP of product at Quantcast. And today I'm going to talk about digital journalism which is the news content that you consume online and talk about it within the context of the free and open internet and really how we got to where we are today and the current state of things. First, a little bit about me. So you have some context about why I care so deeply about this convergence of digital and news content. I grew up loving technology. I started coding when I was 11 because there was just something, you know, incredibly magical about combining letters and numbers and things and making something happening on a screen. I also come from a journalism background. From a very early age, I was obsessed with that idea of the fourth estate and this check and balance on our government. I ran an underground newspaper in high school. And then after high school, I launched a music and arts magazine in college went to photojournalism school and built my newspaper's first website in 1994, which kind of kicked off my digital career. Free and open access to news and information is critical to our lives and our democracies. And this concept is really what fuels me. And being able to leverage technology to expand and protect the impact of journalism is really why I wake up every morning. And before we get into the main narrative, I want to establish a fundamental truth, right? So the, the content that you consume on the internet that people rely on to remain informed it's paid for by advertising, right? This is how it's been, even in print, like getting access to news and information is powered by advertising. And yes, there is content out there that is subscription-based, but that is really more an exception to the rule. If you look at the majority of the content, the articles that we stumble on through you know, the various rabbit holes of search and social, news sites that cover everything from global to national to local news to sports and entertainment, hobbyist sites that entertain us or help us do things ourselves, and even larger platforms like Facebook that feed our digital social needs, they're all available because of this ad ecosystem that we as tech companies and marketers and publishers and consumers have all kind of created. So to go down this path, let's take a little bit of a quick walk through history. And for me, you know, kind of memory lane, right? So digital journalism did not start in the 90s. It was well before then. The first print content that made it to the internet so that people who had a computer and a dial-up connection remember the sounds of the modem, they brought people online and got them connected to newspaper content. So the Columbus Dispatch was the first to actually provide its content through a service that was an experiment run by CompuServe and the Associated Press. And then very quickly after them, the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle and the Examiner and the Washington Post and dozens of others followed them onto this platform. And in the 90s, digital journalism was beginning to take off because of the introduction of this thing that called the World Wide Web. Also helping to power that were faster modems and a little browser called Netscape. 
know, this combination of these three things really led to print media getting online really at lightning speed. And the ease of web publishing increased this proliferation of online digizines in addition to those newspapers. And if you remember, some of them like Word and Salon and then my personal favorite suck, these online digizines began to grow. Now, by the turn of the century, every major print publication and many were already producing net new content that was only available digitally. This really kind of pushed the envelope in terms of leveraging technology to generate and present content to the growing online masses. Eventually, some newspapers like the Seattle Times would just be online and stop the print side of the business. So all of this online content made it really increasingly difficult to find things unless you actually knew the web address. I don't know if anybody remembers having to type in all that stuff. Yahoo came along and kind of fixed this with their directory, right? So they had this curated directory of websites that allowed people to click by category and and find things. And then they created Yahoo News that aggregated all of this content in one place so that people could see it, get their news all in one place and keep going and not have to, to type in domains. It became the most emailed page on the web and really kind of revolutionized the way that we consume news media. But really the big change that came was when Google eventually, you know, won the search engine race. You know, there was Google, there was AltaVista, there were a number of them, but Google really nailed it, right? And it started as a simple tool to navigate the web, but really quickly grew to become basically the what it was the official verb of web searches, right? You don't say you search anymore, you say, did you Google that? Google News joined shortly after that, launching in beta in 2002 and then fully in 2006. So Google News was aggregating news sites across the web, just like Yahoo News was, but really massively at scale. Behind the scenes, there were lawsuits around this, right? Publishers were worried, really honestly, as they should have been, and complained that Google was using their content, right? Their headlines, their leads, their photos, even if it was just a thumbnail, still their photos, that Google was using them without permission and without a way to drive revenue for the content creators, right? So on Google News, you've got all of these aggregated news stories. They're selling ads around it, And that is Google's profit. So, you know, newspapers and other media groups were not very happy about that. But it was hard to turn down traffic, even if that traffic didn't monetize very well because people would come in, they'd read an article and they'd bounce. This became known as the Google one hit wonder. And you just couldn't turn down that traffic, right? So the lawsuits were dropped and the World Wide Web just kind of continued to turn. Now, if we jump forward a little bit to the period of 2005 to 2007, it was a flurry of content production and getting people to click, right? We saw kind of two major areas of rapid growth. Now, blogs had been around since the late 90s on platforms like LiveJournal and Blogger, but it didn't really take off until WordPress caught on with the masses in 2005. It was a format that allowed anyone to come along, spin up a website, and post content on a regular basis. Bloggers began to take on news stories. And while some of these bloggers were former newspaper journalists, many more were just, you know, fans, experts on topics, or just regular Joes. And there got to be a lot of injection of personal beliefs into the news stories, right? And without the journalism norms of fact-checking, using multiple editorial reviews and multiple sources, we kind of began to see this proliferation of content that really used to be reserved for the op-ed pages. I mean, like everything in life, bad often comes with good. We got a whole new growth and source of interesting content, but it really kind of changed the game in terms of balance. And this, the second kind of area that we saw was around this 
because of the ease of, of creating generalized or republished content combined with the ease of monetizing it, this sort of new wave of sites, their superpowers were all around search and social and leveraging SEO and social sharing to drive traffic to their sites, right? So they were building traffic in, in organic ways without advertising. You know, doing that and then constructing headlines paired with images that drove a ton of engagement, right? That's what they were trying to do. Drive deep engagement, lots and lots of click through the sites, keep people going in this rabbit hole. And at the same time, get really good at driving traffic to the site where they would disappear into that rabbit hole. Websites like Huffington Post and BuzzFeed were launched and really kind of perfected that attention grabbing content presentation and that proverbial rabbit hole. So this was all well and good. Totally fine, right? Until tech really figured out a way to turn this traffic into cash. And encouraging this trend were tech companies like Taboola and Outbrain. And they were creating widgets, displaying similar content, but really more from questionable sources that other content producers could add to their own websites as ad units. It kind of took this idea of advertorial and put it onto pages and native kind of came out of this. But people would click these article links and suddenly find themselves on unrecognizable websites, clicking through page after page with every one of those pages having an ad on it or multiple ads. And, you know, people really wondering if they're ever going to get to the point. Now, during the same period, social was really on the rise. You know, as a major fan of tribe.net, I spent a lot of time there and a frequent complainer about MySpace. I can firmly state that Facebook was not the first social network, but it did emerge as the victor in that space. In 2006, Facebook opened its doors to anyone, you know, 13 years or older who had an email address, which this enabled thousands of people in the US to join a user base of what had been just college students and then create their own social networks through friend invites and pet and kid posts. Now, a key piece of this was the launch of the Facebook newsfeed, which created a stream of content that was shareable, right? And it kept people coming back and, and sharing more and reading more and just kind of staying in that newsfeed. Now, a quickly growing software company needs to monetize to pay the bills. And what better way to grow revenue than to tap into all of that social profile data and make it available for advertisers to target consumers directly, knowing exactly who people are and what they like. So in 2007, Facebook ads was launched and the first ads appeared in the Facebook news feeds. Great, right? <laughs> Facebook hit a major milestone just three years later, reaching the 500 million user mark. That's 500 million people spending more and more time every day now on their smartphones, checking first thing in the morning and reading friend updates and sharing content on the newsfeed. That's 500 million people now also seeing ads in their newsfeed. Now, Facebook got the world and specifically the EU's attention in 2013 with the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Now, this exposed the social data of 87 million Facebook users. Facebook was not the only tech giant under this microscope of privacy advocates. This confirmed for regulators that GDPR and privacy regulation, that that was the right direction for them to be going in. They needed to get on top of this kind of thing. But that's a story for another day. All right, let's get back to the content and the and digital journalism. So the, the point of the social element in this story is really more of social bubbles. The more time people spent on Facebook getting their news and information, and the more that Facebook newsfeed algorithm adjusted to their likes, you know, the more time these people spent surrounded by people they like and they agree with. And it really separated them from alternative views and the real reality that is outside the walled garden. A lot of people started getting their news from the Facebook newsfeed. And a lot of that was 
likely not really actually news. I think many people have seen this chart floating around that, that shows media bias today. And it shows, you know, where the logos of major news outlets sit on a spectrum of far left to far right. And the placement of those logos looks far different today than it did in 2007 when Facebook was getting bigger. There are way more logos in general on that graph now, but there are far fewer in the middle, which is where journalism is supposed to be, right? Balanced. This was all fueled by the fast-growing internet economy and the tech factors that spurned that exponential growth. People find comfort in their own echo chamber. It confirms for them what they already believe. And since revenue makes the world go around, publications quickly followed the people, and they also followed that division, right? So no matter where we fall on that spectrum and really how hard we try to stick in the middle, you know, there's moments that we all kind of fall prey to this. And in all of this, those real news sources who really have stuck to the middle, that quality journalism that values balance and ethics, they've been getting squeezed, right? Because the money hasn't been going there. It's been going to the outer limits of that spectrum. So $129 billion was spent in 2019 in the US alone. All that marketing spend is mostly going to the search of social tech giants, with the remainder being spread across that graph, you know, with dozens of logos and the tech companies that power their ability to make money on the web, what little is left is going to them, right? So that's not really enough to run a business on and keep producing quality. You add in the privacy law requirements, the impending death of the third-party cookie, and you've really honestly got a recipe for even more control by the tech giants over the content, the revenue, and the futures of these news sources, really regardless of what side of the spectrum that they fall on. So let's move on. Let's look at where we've kind of ended up today. You know, we are in a place where the news is as divided as our political parties, or the political parties are really as divided as our news. You can look at it both ways. People in protected information only hearing the information they and their friends agree with. You've got Facebook and Google are further cutting publishers out or controlling the flow of ad dollars around publisher content. And big tech, with the history of questionable data and privacy practices that have made major headlines over the past 10 years, are actively being sought after by governments globally. Privacy laws are expanding everywhere. GDPR and other privacy laws that were intended to ensnare these big fish and hold them accountable have, this has really instead been a widely cast net that has ensnared everyone, right? And even consumers who don't really understand what all of this means. They just want the pop-ups to go away and spammers to stop calling and texting them. So what now? Are we so divided where we're kind of stuck in these bubbles forever? You know, will the death of the third party cookie in six months, one year, two years, whenever it happens, drive us back to monetization strategies of 1999? Personally hope not. That was not very fun. Will every consumer be required to hand over actual personal data or pay to access news and information from their own favorite thought bubble? The big question, are we doomed, right? I personally, I don't believe for a minute that we're doomed. We can learn from the past, which I just went over, and we can honestly create a new future, you know, one that's balanced and it's privacy centric and it rewards quality digital journalism. The last few years at Quantcast, I and my team have been working on the Quantcast platform. It's an easy to use advertising platform that enables marketers and publishers to really adapt to the ever-changing consumer behavior, especially with things like the pandemic and, and drive, continue to drive their business growth. It's tools like these. And this was the intent in that we had when we, we went to build it. And a lot of what I believe in about the fourth estate and digital journalism and 
powering this ecosystem went into how we approached building the platform. You know, it's tools like these that enable brands to focus less time on monitoring and optimizing for performance and more time on their strategy, inclusive of, you know, thinking about their brand integrity and how they want to spend their marketing dollars. With the right tools, brands can do the things that will create positive change in the industry. Demanding transparency for your marketing spend across the ecosystem from all the partners. Putting down these brand safety hammers that are used today and picking up more precise tools that don't leave thousands of valid and valuable news articles on the floor, along with the millions of eyeballs that view them. And most importantly, spending in ways that match the beliefs of the brand. You know, choosing to support a diverse and quality digital journalism with your ad dollars, choosing not to support publications that trade in false or inflammatory content or enable the proliferation of hate speech, right? That's another choice that can be made. And like it or not, money drives change. So where and how you spend your ad dollars will affect change in our media and our ecosystem. By supporting quality publications that are BIPOC and woman-owned and operated, brands can fuel more of this great content, creating more diverse voices in our media, popping those social bubbles, and possibly even reversing the direction of this great divide. But you know what? Honestly, talk is cheap. You know, intentions without actions are like movies without endings. It's really not worth watching. This movie for us can still end well for everyone if we all take the right actions. And, you know, remember my initial point earlier about ad-funded journalism? A free press is not free. It takes money to make the world go around, and we all need to do a better job of making the right decisions about where that money goes. Thank you. You're listening to Stay Engaged from IAB UK. Thank you for tuning in to this offstage audio session. And thanks to our partners at Quantcast. If you've enjoyed this session, please share it and tag at IAB UK on Twitter or Instagram. Subscribe wherever you're listening to hear the rest of the Stay Engaged sessions and for the regular IAB UK podcast. In the next session, ACAST Jack Preston and Dr. Ruby Orgula of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast will discuss how brands seemingly reliant on visual marketing can bring their products to life through audio and how working with podcast influencers to tell their brand story will deliver engagement and creative opportunities. Coming up as part of Stay Engaged. Stay Engaged.